We are in Daniel 8 today as we read just a moment ago, and if you're visiting or new, we're working our way chapter by chapter through this book, and of course we come to the chapter we just read a few moments ago. Abraham Lincoln once said, I would rather be a little nobody than an evil somebody. Well, lots of men have disagreed with Lincoln because we all know that history is filled with evil somebodies. We think of names like Joseph Stalin or Emperor Nero or Adolf Hitler. And it's easy to think about these men of the past and to think about their crimes and to get a little bit of a a theological headache. We look at what they did and some of the evil and the atrocities they did, and we think, God, why? Why did you let these men come to power? And why did you let these atrocities happen? That's a real question, and it's also a hard question. But this morning, I want to ask you an even harder question. What if... Instead of remembering the evil somebodies of the past, God showed you the evil somebodies of the future. How would that make you feel? You know, the the past is the past, right? Nobody can change that. But the future, isn't the future in God's hands? And so how on earth could God, in, in good conscience, know the evil that's coming and even predict the evil that's coming, and not prevent the evil that's coming? Knowing that kind of future evil would not just give you a headache, but like Daniel in our text, it would probably give you a stomachache. Did you notice that in verse 27? When Daniel sees, after he sees this vision, he saw all the evil and wicked predicted in this text, and it makes Daniel want to throw up. As it should. Evil in every form should have that effect on us. Every act of murder and every act of rape and every single act of genocide and abortion and racism and abuse, every act of evil should sicken us. As Romans 12 says, abhor what is evil. Whether we see it in our history books or we see it in our headlines, we should be sickened by the evil of this world. Evil is a real problem. We see it, and in our text today, Daniel saw it. And so if you've ever spent time wondering about this problem that we sometimes call the problem of evil, then Daniel chapter 8 is for you. Now, this chapter won't answer all of your questions, I can promise you that. But Daniel will remind us of a very important critical truth once again in keeping with the whole book of Daniel that despite what the past looks like and despite what the future looks like, God is in control, even over evil. Daniel 8 is another all-inclusive chapter where we have the vision in the first half, and then he also provides the interpretation for us in the second half. So we consider the vision first and then get to 
the meaning of it. The, the vision begins with Daniel having what you might call an out-of-body experience. Did you notice he's physically in Babylon, but he is mentally off 200 miles away. He's in this place called Susa. And even this relocation right here, remember, this is still the third year of Belshazzar. Babylon is still around at this point. But what? It's like this relocation says, hey, Daniel, Babylon is fading off the scene. Babylon is old news. Babylon's days are up and Babylon the Great will be fallen. And history is going to march on. And Daniel sees this. He first sees next to a canal this ram. This ram has two long curved horns growing out of its head, but one is, is bigger than the other. And with its lopsided head, this ram starts galloping off in all directions and headbutting every animal that it faces. And having mowed them all down to the ground, this ram then stands tall as if to look around and know that he is king of the mountain. Did you notice at the end of verse 4 it says the ram did as he pleased and magnified himself. Or some of your translations said made himself great. That's the key word of this chapter, by the way. Ma to magnify or to make yourself great. So this ram sort of sticks out his furry chest and raises his scruffy chin and looks down his snout at the bodies around him. Well, then Daniel sees a goat off in the distance. And, and this goat, instead of having two horns, has one sort of big horn. It's not a unicorn. I told my kids it's a unigoat, I guess is what you would call it. And furthermore, this thing has like a rocket on his back. Did you notice? He's running so fast, his feet don't even touch the ground. And he is charging directly at the ram near this canal, and he gets closer and closer, and he zeroes in on him, and he crashes into him. And dazed and confused, the ram tries to stand, but its legs are wobbly and it's noticeably wounded. And so the, the goat then turns and smashes into him a final time and delivers the fatal blow. And then verse 8 says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Now it's his turn to stick out his chest just a little bit farther and to raise his chin a little bit higher because now he, is king of the mountain. Well, right at this high point in this goat's experience, the large horn on his head begins to crack, and then it breaks off. And then four horns grow up in its, uh, uh, underneath it, and then from that comes one small horn. And that small horn, almost like a needle on a compass, starts pointing in all these different directions, but like a needle, it, it eventually focuses in one direction. Notice the end of verse 9, it says, He pointed towards the beautiful land. Some of your translations say the pleasant land. Today we would call this the holy land. And then things get weird. The horn grows and grows and grows and grows until it reaches outer space and swipes across the cosmos and causes stars to fall down. And a meteor shower of sorts seems to happen, and the horn starts stomping on the stars on the ground. And then verse 11, look in your Bibles, it says, the horn magnified itself. So the ram made itself great, the goat made itself great, and now the 
horn makes itself great, but notice he makes himself great. He magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. So this guy doesn't just think he's king of the mountain. He thinks he is king of the cosmos. He is master of the universe. He's in charge of it all. And so he sets his sights specifically on, on Jerusalem. The horn is sort of locked and loaded, and in the crosshairs is the temple of God. And so he, if you will, challenges God himself. And he pierces Palestine with pain. He obliterates the worship, and he annihilates their sacrifices, and he tramples all over the Torah. And this little horn just runs amok all over this part of the world and, and trampling over God's people and God's place. And what the horn does is so shocking and so appalling and, and so just unexpected that the angels in heaven gasp. And they say, how long is this going to go on? In verse 14, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So that's the vision of Daniel 8. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Wouldn't that be terrible if I did that? Just like, all right, we're done. Let's you know, move it. No. So what does all of that, rams and goats and horns and what does this mean? Well, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the interpretation, which again, it's given to us, we'll see in a moment, there's this little interlude. Now, notice verses 15 to 19, there's this little conversation that happens. Daniel, as you can imagine, is dumbfounded by this, and he's, he's confused. It's again, the, the man who interprets visions can't interpret his own vision. And so God, it seems, a voice comes off, uh, echoing off the waters and says, Gabriel, give this man the interpretation. It's not the last time Gabriel is mentioned, but it is the first time he shows up in the Bible. So Gabriel is told to speak to him, and he tells Daniel that this thing pertains to the time of the end. And when the angel says the time of the end, did you notice what happens? Daniel faints. He, he passes out. He says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face. And the angel comes over and goes, wakey, wakey, and like has to like get Daniel's attention. And then he repeats in verse 19, this pertains to the appointed time of the end. He says it twice, it's the time of the end. Now, what does this mean? Well, what I'm about to say might make some of you faint like Daniel. I hope not, but might. In this case, the time of the end doesn't mean the end of time. Now, I know if you're a big prophecy fan, just hang with me. I probably lost some of you, but just, just, just stay focused with me. It's going to make sense in a second. When he speaks here of the time of the end, it sounds like what we would think of as the end of time, but there's, there's a play on words going here. They're supposed to sound similar, and they're supposed to look similar, because they are. Think of it this way. It's like my wife and I, like many of you probably, we watch you know, shows, streaming shows, and shows we've never seen, and sometimes we'll unofficially play a little game going, is this the season finale? You know, we don't pay attention. And, you know, the story sometimes is a little more intense. There's a, there's a cliffhanger. There's some, and we go, ah, I, bet this is the, I bet this was the season finale. You know, we'll watch it, and then the show will go to the next one. We go, ah, see, season three, season five. I knew he wasn't going to die. You know, you, you can kind of figure that stuff, that stuff out. 
But then we'll be watching the show, and sometimes we get and we go, boy, this is really intense. I bet this is the series finale. Right? There might be lots of season finales, and they're all called finales, but they're not the finale finale. And sometimes that, that, that last one looks a lot like these other ones. Some of the same elements show up in them. That's how the Bible oftentimes talks about the end. Sometimes it's the end end, and sometimes it's little other ends, little things that God is doing in His program of redemption where one transition is happening, and the language of this is a lot like the language of that, but it's not necessarily the thing that's out there. It's something in the, the intermediate space. And that seems to be what Daniel is talking about. And in fact, Jesus told us that, did He not? You're going to pick up the headlines and read about new, uh, in the newspapers, you'll read about earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus says, people are going to tell you, it's the end. And what do he say? It's not the end. It feels like the end, and it looks like the end, but it's not the end end. So this vision here is the end of something, but as we'll see, it's not the end of everything. So the most helpful tip that I can give you at this point in Daniel 8, and I think I've hinted at this, but let me just say it more clearly. Everything in Daniel 8 is in Daniel's future. But most of what's here in Daniel 8, if not all of it, is in our past. So it gets complicated, but just think about it. It's all in Daniel's future but many of these details, as I'll show you, are actually events that happened in our past. I'm not saying that for the whole book of Daniel. I'm specifically talking here about Daniel chapter 8. Last week, some of you probably got miffed at me for not identifying the beastly governments by name. You go, oh, why didn't he call this government and that? The reason was because the text didn't say it yet. Did you notice this chapter has some of those names? If you want to know how I prepare my sermons, I open my Bible and I stick my ear down to it and I listen. Oh yeah, that's what it's saying. And it didn't say the names of these nations until today. So that's what we're going to look at them today. And this vision gets really specific. Notice verse 20 says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Oh, by the way, I forgot. This vision is so specific that you can now, if you see the insert in the bulletin, don't look at it right now, but you can now read Daniel 8 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 2, and actually things get just a little bit clearer because of how specific this vision is. Okay, he says, The ram which you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. At the handwriting on the wall incident, you will remember, Babylon was overtaken in a night by a, a dual kingdom, the Medes and Persians. And of those two, the stronger nation were the Persians. They had a little bit more clout, if you will. And so, kind of like a hunchback bear on one side or like a ram with one larger horn, this nation, this dual nation, had the Persians as a little bit stronger influence, and they overshadowed the Medes. And after conquering the Babylonians, they stood for a moment as the kings in the Middle East. Then verse 21 says, The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Now, I cannot stress to you enough how incredible that is. By saying and by learning and Daniel writing down that this is the case, that this is not like, you know, some say, oh, he predicted the future. This is not like predicting the winner of the Super Bowl this year 
What Daniel has recorded here is like predicting the winner of the Super Bowl in three years and the winner of the Super Bowl in 200 years. Daniel gets this vision around the year 540 B.C. The Greeks took over in 330 B.C. That's nearly 200 years. By the way, this vision and this, this interpretation is so astounding, there are many skeptics who read this, and, and then rightfully so, they say, well, I mean, come on. If, if, if what Daniel was saying here was actually written in Daniel's time, it means that Daniel would have had to have some kind of supernatural insight to the future, which means the book of Daniel would be a miracle. Duh. That's exactly what we're saying. It's exactly what he's saying here. So he sees that Babylon will be replaced by the Medes and the Persians, and the Medes and the Persians will be replaced by the Greeks. And then it gets more specific. Verse 21, and it says that the, uh, that the large horn is the first king. And we know who this is. We can verify this outside the Bible. By the way, while I'm here, can I just say this for a moment? This is a side dish. This is not the main meal, but... This, Daniel 8 is one reason that the church must not be ignorant of history. It is to our shame if we don't remember the past. Our doctrinal statement, Article 12, says this, Christianity is the faith of enlightenment and intelligence and that all sound learning is part of our Christian heritage. That's not just theological learning, spiritual learning. That's all learning. We say all truth is God's truth. This is science and math and art and history. My friends, Daniel 8 is a reminder the Bible is not rooted in myths. It's not rooted in legends. It's not rooted in rumors. Daniel, you can pick up a public high school Western Civ textbook and see the reliability of Scripture right here. Daniel chapter 8 reminds us that world history is the outstretched canvas upon which God has painted His beautiful masterpiece called redemption. And He's brought that about for us through real people in real places in real time. So who is this first king? Well, you know of his name. is a man named Alexander the Great. He conquered the Persian Empire, and he did it as fast as a leopard, as nimble as a bird, in all directions like he had four heads, and he crushed them like a goat. He conquered two million square miles in a few short years, and at the height of his power, at the moment he did it all, he, he cracked, if you will, and he died at the age of 33. Just as the text said, this one king was then replaced by four kings. Alexander's empire was divided into four parts and handed over to four generals, four governors, four regions, and they ruled for a time. And then verse 23 says, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. Now just notice for a second, in verses 20 and 21, we covered like 300 years of world history. And then with verse 23 the passage slows down and it focuses entirely on this one king. 
this small horn in the vision that would arise. So who is this one horn? By the way, just real quick, last week we saw a little horn in Daniel 7, and here we see another small horn in Daniel 8. Having studied this, I'm convinced that the two are different. And, and if you're keeping score, the reason for that is, in Daniel 7, the, the, um, the small horn comes out of the fourth beastly government. It's chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. This one comes out of the third beastly government named here as Greece. Now, the two horns are remarkably similar. So there's clearly a reason they share a nickname, but I think they're different. And this one right here is kind of a historic figure that may have pointed to what the other one was like. So who is this little horn? Well, history tells us it was a man by the name of Antiochus IV. After Alexander, four generals, of those four came one, this man named Antiochus, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. If history had had a, a board, and on the board was all the w wicked, evil men in history, Antiochus could have been the chairman of the board. The sins of Antiochus are almost unspeakable from the pulpit. There is not an R-rated movie, graphic or violent or, or, or wicked enough to portray some of the stuff that he did. And now, I'm not an expert in intertestamental history, so some of what I'm about to say is being lifted directly from some books and commentaries and things. I don't, I'm not going to stop and give you all the footnotes, but smarter men than me did some of the research here on the history. Notice verse 23 says, this king will arise, and in the NASB, the, ne the next word says, he will be insolent. Some of your translations say ruthless, others say fierce. But the Hebrew word there literally implies he will have a strong face. You ever heard somebody refer to a bold-faced lie? That's this guy. He was a bold-faced sinner. And he would come with, with, with unashamedly and openly wicked in what he did. So what would he do? Verse 24, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. Notice that. He will prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men. And notice this. And he will destroy the holy people. Now, who are the holy people in the Old Testament? It's Israel. It's the Jews. Remember the, 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 the horn like a compass points in one direction? The beautiful land or the, the holy land? Remember the language when it says this horn will, will swipe through the stars and knock them to the ground? You think, well, that sounds really cosmic. Well, it, it is. But, but you remember, how did God describe Abraham's descendants? Like the stars in the sky. And so he says the stars will be trampled by this man. And history records Antiochus Epiphanes went on a murderous rampage through Jerusalem and Israel. If you think Hitler was anti-Semitic, listen to some of what Antiochus did. Verse 11 and 12, as it predicted, he came into Jerusalem around the year 170 B.C. when he stormed the temple and he ransacked. He murdered the great high priest first and foremost, and as a result, stopped all the daily sacrifices in Israel. And in a psychotic rage, he killed one in ten people. He outlawed circumcision and said anyone that participated in it would be tortured and killed. And that was not an empty threat. History records that he crucified mothers 
and strangled children who had been circumcised. Verse 12 says that the horn will fling the truth to the ground. While he was in the temple, he took the scrolls of the Old Testament and he ripped them up like confetti and even burned some and literally tossed them on the ground like they were just ticker tape at a parade. He then took one of the most unclean animals, according to the Old Testament law, a pig, and he placed it on the altar, and he sacrificed it. And the filthy blood of a filthy pig ran down all the corners of the altar. It was a blasphemy of all blasphemies. And it was so vile that in a couple of chapters, it's going to receive a nickname by, from God himself, the abomination of desolation. Even more, if you remember our key word, what was it? He he magnified, right? Or he was great. Look at verse 25. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while at ease, and he will even oppose the prince of princes. Now, the way I thought about it this week, it says he, right, the, the ram magnified himself, the goat magnified himself, and now the horn magnified himself. But do you remember in Daniel who was the first person to magnify himself? It was Nebuchadnezzar. It's almost like the arrogant spirit of Nebuchadnezzar is haunting everybody that takes over his real estate. Every kingdom that moves in tries to take this land and they get possessed with this spirit of arrogance and pride and it only seems to get worse and worse and worse. And where Nebuchadnezzar apparently in chapter 4 repented of his arrogance, these men it only seems to get worse and worse and compound to the point that this man exalts himself to the point that he opposes the prince of princes. Likely it's, he's taking on God himself, at least through the priest's there at the temple. When he came into the temple, after destroying it, Antiochus set up a giant statue to Zeus and an altar on which some historians record he not only sacrificed a pig, but he even sacrificed humans. And Antiochus hung banners of Greek gods all around the the temple room, insisting and celebrating idolatry right there in the temple. And then Antiochus, to top it all off, decided to mint a commemorative coin to himself. And the coin on one side had his picture, his, his, literally his bold face, stamped into it. And on the other side, he put his name, but he decided to uh, throw in a nickname for himself. He called himself Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus who is God made manifest. This man claimed to be God in the flesh when in fact he was evil incarnate. And his wickedness and his rule and his arrogance was unrivaled. So Daniel foresees all this evil and all this that was coming in the next two, three hundred years. Why would God show him this? Well, I think we can learn a few lessons. First of all, brothers and sisters, this vision reminds us that God is not ignorant of the evil in this world. I know it feels like it. 
I know some days it seems like God is oblivious because your experience and the thing you're going through right now feels like God is, is so far away. But listen to me, I know God, even though he is older than time itself, he is not senile. He is aware. And if he knew what was happening in the 400 years in Israel's future, down to the smallest of details of the wickedness, he knows the same in your life, both your past and your future, the good and the bad and the ugly. And the things that I know that some of you have dealt with, experiences that are vile and wicked that you would never publicly talk about, things maybe you've never told your family or told those around you, and those things that seem so impossible, my friends, God sees and knows every one of those pains. He knows every abuse and every terror and every nightmare and every bit of darkness. And he wants you to be aware that he is fully aware. Down to the smallest of details. As he was with Israel. We also learn, I think, that through Daniel, God was preparing his people for this coming evil. Israel was in exile still under Babylon. And God's saying, look, I know exile has been rough, but... Buckle up, it's about to get a lot rougher. There's some debate about verse 12. It may be that God is saying this is the result of your transgression, that Antiochus's murderous bloodbath is a result of Israel's own sin. But nevertheless, God was telling them this was coming, and he was predicting this to, to call them out to continue to what? To be faithful to him. D Daniel chapter 8 reminds me of, of John 16. Remember John 16, Jesus told his disciples in great detail, he said what? Some of you are going to get arrested, and some of you are going to get beaten, and some of you will get desynagogued, and some of you, will, your family will turn their backs on you, and the whole world will seem like it's out to get you. And Jesus said in John 16, verse 1, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Meaning, as one commentator said, God did not hide trouble in the fine print. He told us up front that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom. And he made them aware of the fact that this comes with following him. When, when Antiochus started attacking the temple, I wonder how many Jews turned their backs and says, God has forgotten us, God has abandoned us, when in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. God knew this was coming, and God was going to be at work through it all. Brothers and sisters, we need to meditate long and hard on the doctrine of perseverance. That's what we're called to, to persevere through the hard times, to persevere when it seems like God has abandoned us, to persevere when it seems like evil is only getting greater and greater in our world, and to remain faithful to him. There will be a cost for following Christ, for being God's people in every age. And not only does God know about this evil, Daniel also sees that God has a plan for this evil. Look at the end of verse 25. This horn will oppose the prince of princes. Then look at this little phrase. But he will be broken without human agency. History says that one day Antiochus was riding along in his chariot and he fell off. 
no battle, no war, no fighting. They thought, what happened? They went and checked him out. And lo and behold, mysteriously, some of his bones were broken. Maybe his osteoporosis, I don't know. But because of this, his body was filled with infection and pus and eventually maggots. And Antiochus rotted from the inside out. No man killed him. He died without human agents. But the promise of that verse is, notice that little phrase, he will be broken. Not might be broken, not not could be broken, not even should be broken, will be broken. My friends, let every false prophet and every cult leader and every so-called demigod alive today be forewarned, God is not mocked. And for any man who would exalt himself to the level of God or to be treated as such is not is, is, is setting themselves up for disaster. Proverbs 24, 20 says, the evil man has no future because of the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Antiochus rose just as God predicted and Antiochus fell just as God predicted. And because of that, Daniel 8 shows us that yes, evil runs around in our world, but it always runs around on God's leash. The Lord of heaven says to the evil men of our world what he says to the waves of the ocean, you may go this far, but no further. What did God say to Satan when he came about Job? He says, his hand is in your life, but you will spare his life. Even the devil can't do it if God doesn't allow it. You see, we all know that evil is a big problem. And Daniel 8 reminds us, though, if there was not a merciful God in heaven, do you know how bad evil would actually be? You think it's bad now? Imagine a world without a God who is repressing the oppressors. Without a God putting a governor on the governors. Without a God setting boundaries and limits and expiration dates. Daniel 8 teaches us that not only will evil come into our world and not only will evil come into our nation and not only will evil come into our lives, but evil will come to an end. It will hurt us, but it won't hurt forever. It will last, but it won't last forever. And Daniel has promised that yes, on the one hand, evil will have its day, but on the other hand, Its days are numbered. In fact, in this text, its days were literally numbered. 2,300 evenings and mornings. From the time that Antiochus murdered the great high priest to the time that that it was uh, rededicated in the temple, 2,300 days. Notice verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings. In other words, the time span which has been told is true. Brothers and sisters, Daniel 8 reminds us, as sure as you can count on evil, as sure as you can count on pain, as sure as you can count on evil somebodies, you can count on God to take care of them one day. He has set their limits and set their boundaries and God is in control even over evil. 
The same God who restrains the evil in this world is the same God, by the way, who came to destroy the evil of this world. You see, the Bible tells us that when Jesus came to earth, unlike Antiochus, who claimed to be God in the flesh, Jesus truly was God in the flesh. And unlike Antiochus, who, who said that, that uh, who, who had to be broken because of his evil, Christ was broken not because of his evil, but because of our evil. Because of the pain and the evil in our world that came through Adam's sin and our rebellion against him. Brothers and sisters, so often when, when things happen, when pain comes and cancer comes and terrorism comes and divorce comes and these horrible, evil, nasty things come, we look to God and we say, God, do, do you not see my pain? And Christ says, do you not see my scars? This is what it's about. It is in the cross of Christ that the wickedness and evil of men come face to face with the justice and righteousness of God. And it was Christ himself who says, I'll take the penalty. I'll suffer the hell that they deserve. I'll deal with the problem. The answer to the problem of evil is not found in a class. It is found at the cross. And it was through his death and resurrection that, guess what? The Lamb of God head-butted the forces of evil. And one day when he comes again, he will deliver the final blow against evil and death and pain and suffering. And until that day comes, what do we, what do, we do? It's simple. We pray as Jesus taught us, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Why do we pray that prayer? Because brothers and sisters, I promise you as the day is long, one day King Jesus will answer that prayer. And he will deliver us. And when he comes as judge over all the earth, he will have a line in front of him. And in that line there will be the, the goats on the other side. And in that line will be the Hitlers and the, the Neros and the Antiochuses and the rapists and the racists and the murderers and the tyrants and the evil men of this world. But my friends, not only that, if you do not trust Christ, you will be in that line too. That's why scripture says the wages of sin is death. It's what we all deserve for our rebellion against God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It was in his death and resurrection that Christ came and, and, and solved the problem of evil for us. But because he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So make no mistake about it. God did not start the problem of evil. But he will be the one that ends the problem of evil. And that's because God is in control. Even over evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the vision of Daniel 8. A grand vision that seems like so much of the past and yet has a timeless message for our present day. Lord, we at times like the angel cry out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long? 
And we don't have an exact number of days, but we do have the exact promise that one day you will come again. And until then, Lord, we want to persevere. We don't want to buckle under the pressure. We want to be faithful to you. And so, Lord, may we continue to live lives of obedience to you and lives that that don't magnify ourselves, but magnify your name as the one true and only God who can take care of the evil of this world. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.